was the Christmas tree? I'm not sure. Might have been Andrew. Okay, welcome to the final session of the 2014 Jerry Mental Health Series, Elder Mistreatment, which is presented by Ellen Flaherty. This is a topic change from our original schedule, but an important one for all professionals to recognize. The Northern New England Geriatric Education Center and its activities are funded by the Health Resources and Services Administration. This funding allows us to offer this program to you at no charge. Our work is to enhance the care of older adults by offering a comprehensive interdisciplinary educational program targeted to the healthcare workforce. And we emphasize evidence-based best practices in geriatric care. Um, we, in order for you to receive educational credit for this program, you must be signed in legibly. So be sure that you've signed in on the attendance sheet if you're at a remote site. If we can't read your handwriting, we cannot award you credit if you're watching online, you'll need to complete a form online after the program. If you don't already have instructions on how to do that, please email geriatric.ed at dartmouth.edu for instructions. Again, that's geriatric.ed at dartmouth.edu. Or you can call 603-653-3443. You should have also received a form that tells you how to obtain your continuing education credits or contact hours online. Please be sure to keep that sheet so you can refer to it later. If you have any cell phones, please silence them now if you haven't already. It sounds like the remote site audio is all muted. If you have a question during or after the presentation, please unmute your audio and get the speaker's attention. None of the planning committee members for this series, including today's speaker, have any influencing financial relationships to disclose, and there will be no off-label uses discussed. Ellen Flaherty is a PhD prepared advanced practice nurse and is a provider in general internal medicine at Dartmouth Hitchcock Medical Center. And she also serves as the Northern New England Geriatric Center Education Center's clinical training director. Ellen has worked in geriatric nursing for 25 years in multiple settings, including Jewish Home and Hospital, Westchester Medical Group, and New York University. Her career has had a focus on improving geriatric care including developing new models of interdisciplinary training for healthcare professionals, improving team effectiveness across disciplines, and quality improvement. Twist you that way. <laughs> Great. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, welcome. Thank you for, um, for coming on this uh, kind of snowy, wet day. Um, I was hoping to have this uh, be as interactive as possible, which is a little challenging. Um, so what I would request is that you just unmute and chime in. Um, I will at times kind of stop um, to provide opportunity for people to comment, ask questions, but it's real hard for us to see, even if you kind of wave. I mean, you could really flail and we'll see. But just unmute and just start talking and that will be, that will be terrific. Um, so today we're talking about mistreatment of older adults. Um, and the objectives for today are really to think about not only different forms of elder mistreatment, but how do I identify opportunities um, to certainly prevent mistreatment? And I think that's clearly the key in trying to identify uh, the mistreatment in the first place, is how do we, how do we stop further mistreatment? Um, some of the signs of potential abuse, neglect, abandonment, and financial exploitation. And as many of you know who practice in the field, 
this can be really quite challenging. Certainly the, the, the really overt cases we all kind of get. Um, it's those cases that really are in what we call the gray area um, that really require um, kind of an interdisciplinary approach and to really have colleagues that we work with that we can bounce things off of and, and think about and strategize about, about some next steps. Um, and then how and when to enlist the help of, of agencies. Um, certainly we're all familiar with adult protective services in whatever state that we practice in, Vermont, New Hampshire, predominantly in this area. And those agencies generally work quite differently. Um, and we've all had experiences, both good and challenging, um, in reporting cases. And, and the one thing, again, that I have to stress that it certainly in my experience, um, the best outcome has always been when I'm, when I'm working on a, on a team approach. Um, we're quite fortunate in, in my practice setting to actually have uh, care managers, care coordinators, social workers um, who really are, are the folks that really drill down and can really help us um, not only to identify and prevent but even in, in, in terms of reporting, and, and, and they're real experts in terms of, of dealing with some of these agencies. So I, I really encourage you, don't, don't be flying solo out there, and, and hopefully you have, uh, have, have some supports to be able to do that. Um, so some of the topics that we're gonna cover today is certainly the definition of mistreatment, some of, some of the causes, some of the risk factors, um, how we might go about go about assessing um, uh, elder neglect, self-neglect, um, which is something that, that we see uh, a lot of, certainly in, um, in the settings where I practice. I actually, um, a large part of my practice is in uh, managing home care patients and managing patients in facilities, um, which again has its, uh, uh, own challenges in terms of identifying other types of neglect, certainly um, professional mistreatment, those types of things. Um, what is the role of the older person? And as I mentioned, institutional mistreatment. Um, what are some of the interventions? And again, the medical legal advice. So if we just start out by, by uh, approaching this from really what is the definition? What is elder mistreatment? Um, certainly in intentional actions that cause harm or create a serious risk of harm, whether or not harm is intended to a vulnerable elder by a caregiver or other person who stands in a trust relationship to the elder, or the failure by a caregiver to satisfy the elder's basic needs uh, or to protect the elder from harm. Um, I think um, certainly this provides you with, with some um, additional resources um, to, uh, to go to, certainly this website, um, to, to provide, again, other types of assessment tools, cases, media resources, and, 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 and things like that. I think um, I'm gonna start out by talking about uh, a very recent case um, that, that we had to manage and um, it's actually a, um, a, a case that I have to say in my 30 years of practice was, uh, was, was very different. Um, we got a call from an assisted living facility, we actually got a call from the lab 
um, that we had sent uh, myself and and my my partner in practice, who's a who's a geriatrician, um, that we had sent a, a urine specimen to the lab because the patient was mildly febrile and we were concerned that she had a, a recurrent urinary tract infection, and. The lab director actually called my, my partner to report that, that they identified sperm in her urine. Um, the patient is 102 and lives in an assisted living facility. Um, so the two of us kind of looked at each other and were quite surprised. Uh, first, that is something that had never been reported to either one of us. Um, so as we, obviously the first thing we did was to immediately call the facility. And, and essentially at the end of the investigation, so immediately we, we began to think, number one, was, was this staff potentially? Was this, was this older adult raped? She has cognitive impairment, but I wouldn't necessarily consider it really end-stage cognitive impairment, and this patient although she's 102 with cognitive impairment, she clearly complains of pain. She can express uh, symptoms that she has. Um, she clearly, she is not somebody who is bed bound. She's ambulatory. She goes to the dining room. Um, so the idea that she was uh, sexually assaulted against her wishes was really quite puzzling. Um, to, to both of us. So we immediately, of course, called the facility, called the administration of the facility, who then conducted their appropriate investigation. And it was reported back to us that another resident was found in her bed, um, actually um, a week or so before this episode. Um, and this uh, older gentleman, who was also on the unit, was younger. Um, he was in his 70s. And um, so as we moved forward under the assumption that there was actually some um, sexual act and that is how it resulted that she had sperm in her urine, um, we then proceeded, of course, to, uh, to interview her. Um, and she essentially denied that she um, was harmed in any way. Um, she seemed rather confused when the questions were asked about any um, sexual assault. Um, so she pretty much, again, didn't adamantly deny it, but you knew that there was not a clear understanding of what we were talking about. Um, and um, on exam, there certainly wasn't any evidence of any major trauma. Um, and so, of course, the facility then proceeded to have a discussion with her daughter, um, who is her durable power of attorney for healthcare, who was not super concerned about the, the, the episode. And we also obviously communicated with the family of um, the, the man. And there were, Immediately, there were measures put into place to ensure that he would not um, go back into her room. Um, but this case um, um, still kind of it makes me feel very uneasy. Um, and, um, and I'm kind of, I mean, I, I'm certain why I feel uneasy. I feel uneasy that there was certainly something that went on that she may or may not have consented to. Um, 
And so I just put that out there that, you know, sometimes with situations like this, um, you know, it's, it's kind of when we talk about, for example, the definition of an ethical dilemma. So the definition, you know, is that in your gut, you just, you just don't feel right about it. Like there's something there that you walk away. And, and, and I think that, that that is also the case with many times of identification of, of mistreatment, that there's just something there and that you do your due diligence, you conduct investigations, you report, you don't report. And of course, you know, there's all these decision trees about when to report, when not to report. If somebody lives at home, what, what are all those issues? Um, but it generally just kind of leaves this feeling with you um, that, that something was just, was just not right. Um, so when we think about different forms of, of mistreatment, certainly physical abuse, psychological abuse, neglect, intentional or un, unintentional, self-neglect, financial exploitation and abandonment. Before I continue though, I just wanna stop and see if anybody has any, any comments any uh, anything folks want to share specific to that case or another case that may be similar um, to that case? Okay, we will continue. So the epidemiology is, is that certainly there's a national incidence of about 450,000 um, cases of, of elder mistreatment annually. Um, um, almost 11.5% of those um, aged 60 and older are affected. So it's not just the, the occasional um, um, episode. Certainly this is a lot more widespread, I think, than, than most of us um, would, would like to, to think about for sure. Um, so mistreatment and self-neglect certainly increases the risk of death, um, independent of any chronic disease. So the studies show that folks who are um, um, mistreated certainly have a higher incidence of, of more morbidity and mortality. Um, and the impact of screening for mistreatment has been studied to some degree, um, but routine screening in, in primary care is really absolutely um, uh, warranted. And the evidence suggests that um, the more systematic we can be about embedding um, routine screenings, obviously the greater the chance we have of identifying any issues of mistreatment. Um, I think when, for any of anybody who has been involved in any type of investigation, um, whether it be in a community primary care setting or in an institutional setting, knows the amount of time and energy that's generally put into a lot of these investigations. And, and I think in part, um, the lack of systematic screening and the lack of not addressing it is in part because there are some who feel that there are, there are potentially um, false positives in screening and that that amount of staff time and energy that takes um, is, is really very challenging from an administrative um, perspective. When we think about risk factors, um, some of these things are pretty obvious. Cognitive impairment, um, poverty, dependency for caregiving needs, 
um, really folks' inability to share exactly what's happening with them, um, and um, the identification of people in, in a situation who uh, may be cognitively impaired to the point that they cannot communicate um, any types of distress. So again, the burden is on us as, as care providers to really identify um, what some of those symptoms are. Um, certainly caregiver stress has been studied a lot and uh, identified and we, we talk a lot about it. Um, and some of the things that we do intentionally to reduce caregiver stress in terms of support groups and home visiting programs um, and other types of community programs um, because we do know that caregiver stress is absolutely, absolutely connected um, to elder neglect and mistreatment. Um, it was actually a great videotape that was done um, about 15 years ago, and you still might be able to Google it. It was really an amazing video that was done um, by, um, it was probably like, it was, I think it was done in New York City out of the Adult Protective Services. And the video um, highlighted interviews from abusers. And part of the retribution, part of their punishment, um, they were offered the ability to participate in this video. Um, and it was shocking and quite revealing. Um, and so the videotape um, really explored the, uh, these three individual cases um, of uh, elder mistreatment. And the caregivers were very explicit. Um, they talked about how they really lost control um, and the one individual talked about, the, this was a daughter um, who was uh, in her 70s and she was caring for her mom who was in her 90s. Um, and the issue related to um, uh, not, the, what, what she talked mostly about in the video was not changing her mom's diaper. Um, and how she had such anger towards the mom who was waking her up, you know, every hour and a half. The mom had cognitive impairment, but that she was so sleep deprived to this caregiver. Um, and, and she went on and, and obviously told her whole, her whole story and um, she was quite emotional. Um, and so, you know, what was shocking about this is that she was what I call, you know, every caregiver that you meet. Um, and that this is not people who are outliers. These are not people. These are people who are amongst, you know, all caregivers and are just stressed out to the point that they really, really lose control of, you know, rational thinking. And so somebody who would have never, ever, you know, um, considered or intentionally thought about this in the past was just kind of driven to this just because of the stress um, of, of the caregiving in the situation. So again, back to risk factors for abusive or inadequate uh, caregiving, as we talked about, 
uh, cognitive impairment and the, and the dependency. Um, very often in situations um, of caring for frail older adults, th there is a fair amount of family conflict. And, and so the common scenario that I'm sure a lot of you have dealt with is the one you know, sibling who takes it upon themselves to be the primary caregiver and can become extremely resentful. And um, without that kind of functional family support, really does um, start to develop not only a certain amount of resentment, um, but again, things like depression, anxiety on the part of the caregivers, which certainly them puts them at risk um, for this um, mistreatment. Common things that happen all the time in families, alcohol abuse, mental illness, other types of disability, when you kind of layer over the caregiving for a frail older adult that again may be up all night and falling and um, you know agitated, um, you, you, you layer that on top of you know quote unquote some you know normal dysfunction um, and, it, and it's not hard to understand um, how some of this happens. Um, financial stress um, we know how expensive it is for to to hire private caregivers, and how so many people really sit inside that you know kind of donut of you know uh, not being indigent enough, but not really having enough funds to to pay for private care. Um, so again, that exacerbation on the family about not having those funds, um, and again just you know, stressful events in general in a family. Um, so when we think about I identifying um, elder mistreatment, certainly interviewing the, the older adult and the caregiver separately and privately um, is really helpful. Conducting a comprehensive assessment. And I go back to what I said initially, don't do this alone. This really has to be part of, of a team approach. Um, and. I think all of us have had, uh, again, good experiences and challenging experiences about reporting. So at what point do you report? Well, most of us practice in what they call mandatory reporting states that we are mandated to report. Um, so I think we all you know, teeter on, um, you know, is this a reportable uh, incident? And many providers say, my experience has been that I don't get a lot of results when I report and that it actually exacerbates a very stressful situation in a family. Um, and so that's why I think, again, going back to that team approach, being able to bounce that off of each other, to talk about that as a team um, is really extremely important. Um, again, I, I think that while some folks are really skilled at conducting these interviews. There's a lot of folks who are not. Um, so I think my feeling is that, that again, practicing in a mandatory uh, state is that um, it's often better to report than not to report. Um, I think the, one of the best experiences that I have had with reporting was essentially um, the um, what was able to happen is that the patient's resources were um, 
liquidated in some sense to be able to, to, to support private care. Um, and that would not have happened had the, had the state not been involved in this situation. Um, so I think that there are some really positive outcomes that can happen from reporting. Um, but again, it, it, it certainly is a challenge. And as many of us know, reporting also often requires a tremendous amount of more work on our part in terms of documenting and communicating. So what are some of the signs? Well, some of the obvious things are obvious. If somebody appears to be neglected, if somebody has soiled or inappropriate clothing, poor hygiene, um, nutritional deficits, um, I think the, what, the biggest challenge for me certainly is um, when, we, when we think about um, self-neglect, and we're gonna talk about that in a minute. Um, possible signs of neglect, anxiety, nervousness in the presence of a caregiver, um, excessive deference to the caregiver. Um, I actually just saw a patient this morning and she was there with her caregiver and I actually asked our care manager to, to um, come into the visit because for some reason, things just didn't seem right to me with this caregiver. Um, so the caregiver is um, reportedly um, is one of her, this is, this is a patient in her late 80s, um, and her primary caregiver is a friend of her son's. Both of her sons live, you know, across the country. You know, they're in their 50s and 60s, her son. And so this is, her primary caregiver is uh, a gentleman who is um, probably in his late 50s. Um, and it just was just one of those, you know, situations and and I kind of use the term that it just it, it smelled fishy there was just something there that just didn't sit right the woman was well cared for she's cognitively intact um, but again I but just by my general assessment and my experience and what we call kind of the gestalt you know sometimes you can't put your finger on it but you just have that gut feeling um, it's very hard to describe so I asked the care manager to come in, and I'll talk to her this afternoon. But, and I'm not exactly sure what it is that I was concerned about. So is it potentially financial exploitation? I'm, I'm not really too sure, but again, it was kind of my gut that there was potentially something going on. Um, so again, bring in, bring in some of the, the team members. Um, certainly, um, some of the things that we see are you know repeated falls, repeated injuries. Um, um, I'm going to talk in a minute about about driving and and, and see if I can um, engage some folks in a conversation about that. So what happens when you know when there's neglect on the part of caregivers that who allow patients who become more and more cognitively um, impaired to stay at home alone? to go out on their own, to drive the car. Um, and how does that fit into this kind of, you know, neglect or mistreatment milieu? Um, we've, Dr. Dan Bateman, who's one of our faculty members, has um, um, done numerous lectures on, on the question of driving um, that you can certainly look into and, and download and, and watch. They're really excellent, excellent 
um, lecture that he gives on driving, and we'll touch on that in a, in a minute. Um, whenever we see things in patients, for example, unexpected depression or withdrawal, withdrawal, a lot of this stuff happens in the context of cognitive impairment. So from a pure assessment perspective, it's really, really challenging. We know how much depression and dementia go hand in hand, how much depression and anxiety go hand in hand. So a lot of these things are really, really hard to tease out. Um, again, when we think about folks in facilities, about contractures, dehydration, malnutrition, um, um, pressure ulcers, um, which again is a whole nother, um, could be a whole nother lecture to talk about um, the reporting of pressure ulcers and how that's, you know, a civil rights violation in some states and what happens. Um, medication use that is inadequate, excessive, or otherwise inappropriate. Um, we hear all the time about the, um, the misuse of opioids. Um, certainly, um, Vermont and New Hampshire are, are states that see a tremendous amount of, uh, of drug abuse. Um, when we think about what happens with an older adult who has an opioid in the house, um, and then um, we uh, understand what happens with addiction, with teenagers who are addicted, younger people who are addicted. Um, many of you may have seen the movie called Hungry Heart which was a movie that was done by a Vermont filmmaker. I would strongly recommend it. It's an amazing, amazing video. Um, and the video was made by a pediatrician in St. Albans, Vermont. Uh, and he talks about how um, he became um, um, concerned and became a prescriber of Suboxone. The point is the movie focuses on a number of uh, teenage addicts. And, and in the film, they talk about where they got their drugs from. And in the film, several of them said they went to grandma's house. Um, and so in terms of managing opioids for an older adult, who's administering them? How are they locked up? Uh, who's inside the house? Are these drugs being diverted? I mean, we've had a number of cases um, and I've only been here five years, and I, you know, there's been more cases than 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 I I really um, would expect um, of diversion. Um, and so, you know, even with you know our 90-year-olds, um, the you know the little old lady that we're prescribing opioids, um, we do uh, drug testing uh, and have contracts because of the incidents of diversion. Um, so again, back to mistreatment and abuse, um, you have somebody who has chronic intractable pain um, and you know, following guidelines, we're prescribing you know, an opioid that we feel is really gonna improve the quality of life for an older adult who has this severe, severe pain that you know, nothing else is working. Um, and then to have that that medication diverted and, and then still be in this intractable pain. Um, we've had a number of situations where the older adult knew that, again, some of the pills were being sold and 
again, was kind of, you know, sucking it up and using half the dose. Um, we've had situations where um, the uh, older adult was coached um, to talk about persistent pain in the hopes that it wasn't, you know, it wasn't uh, somebody that we would uh, immediately classify as, you know, drug seeking coming into the clinic. Um, you know, it's a 92-year-old uh, woman with, you know, chronic arthritis. Um, and again, not somebody that would be immediately identified as drug seeking um, and therefore gets, gets more opioid prescriptions. Um, signs of financial exploitation, you know, we read about this all the time. Um, and there's been actually a fair amount of effort to educate um, uh, banks and to educate other financial institutions. Um, and while we, even here at our Aging Resource Center, run programs about, you know, avoiding fraud and, and how we avoid that, you know, I would say probably on a weekly basis, um, we, we hear of either internal or external exploitation um, of a patient in terms of their finances. Um, and, you know, the obvious cases that, that are really heartbreaking is when this happens and then the patient certainly doesn't even qualify for Medicaid because their bank accounts were kind of wiped out, but they did have money and, and all those kind of complicated, complicated issues. Um, back to the, to, the, to the dementia patients that are left alone, um, some of this is, is really hard to, to pick up on. Um, sometimes uh, caregivers will not specifically talk about um, what happens. Um, um, we have had situations where, again, patients were restrained um, so the caregiver could, could leave the house. Um, what we're finding now is more and more we're trying to um, develop, you know, community resources for kind of companion care. Um, back to the whole issue of caregiving and the, the cost associated with that. Um, but we very often um, encounter caregivers who, who admit to, to leaving folks at home that are probably really not safe. Um, in terms of, of, of leaving people at home. I think this is one of the, the, the more challenging aspects of mistreatment. Um, and part of that is, again, us always thinking about not wanting to impose certainly our values or standards. Um, so as somebody who makes a fair amount of, of, of home visits and house calls, um, we see a lot of self-neglect. Um, I have a patient that I'm gonna see this afternoon and um, this patient um, just coincidentally is, is, is a member of, of my uh, church community and um, I'm constantly asked by, by other parishioners um, you know, how they can help and what they can do um, for this individual who has a lot of financial resources, does not have a great relationship with his um, son and daughter-in-law who are prominent members of the community. And so 
Um, at one point, for example, we, um, we had arranged for parishioners to pick this gentleman up to come to, to church on Sunday. And when the, the parishioners go to his home um, and try to help him um, to get into the car or to come out to church, what they're noticing is that he's in soiled clothing, that you know there's a very strong urine scent, and that while he has this lovely home, the home is, everything is really disheveled and there's old food around. And you know, um, so people, friends of mine have come and said, you know, why are you not doing anything? Have you seen what this house looks like? And what, what, you know, why isn't the son doing something more? And why is the daughter-in-law not doing something more? And obviously I can't discuss, you know, the care of the patient with anybody else. But, but the bottom line is, is that the patient is cognitively intact. The patient has decision-making capacity. Again, has this dysfunctional relationship with his son and daughter-in-law. Um, which goes back many years, and while the son and the daughter-in-law, again, try to help out as much as they can, because of that uh, conflict that has been, you know, existing for 30 years, um, they're not doing that kind of let's sweep in, let's sweep in, and that you see often, and, and kind of get the situation under control. Um, and what we find with this patient in particular is that, you know, he's very, very articulate. He defends what he's doing. He says, I don't want to go anywhere. This is how I want to live. I have a right to live like this. And there's very little that, that we can do other than to offer support. I'm making a home visit this afternoon. He's not taking his medications. He, again, has, you know, decision-making capacity we certainly worry about issues like depression, somebody like him. Um, we have been caring for him for many years when he was much more functional, and we f his affect has really not changed, and he doesn't screen positive for depression. Um, but this is, this is real self-neglect, and um, unfortunately, this is one of those situations where um, you foresee that nothing will change unless there's a, a real disaster, which could potentially be unfortunate. So whether it's gonna be a fall with a hip fracture, um, whether it's going to be you know, some disaster that happens in the house, I don't really know. But again, it's a lot of these self-neglect cases are really, really challenging. Um, and I think what happens also is that you have somebody who has made a decision to exist like this and then they become cognitively impaired and how much do you begin to then take over and um, a lot of this again is, is very much related to relationships with families, um, durable power of attorneys, how much support we can provide as a community um, and I think one of the challenges very particular with this case is that he does have financial resources that he doesn't feel he should spend on his care. Um, so in other situations where we might be able to apply for help and get some help into the home that the older adult maybe has to pay very minimal amounts for, there seems to be 
a little bit more acceptance of that. But even though he has the resources, he refuses to, to spend those resources on his care. Um, again, we talked a little bit about um, um, the dysfunctional relationships between dependent older adults, um, mutually abusive relationships, and we, we actually, you know, have spoken to the son and the daughter-in-law of this, of this patient that, that I'm talking about. And, and the daughter-in-law really, you know, she talks about some really horrific things and, and his relationship with his children and his lack of support um, for his children um, when they were younger. And um, she actually classified it as, as abusive in terms of his behavior. So um, the daughter-in-law has, you know, she, she's a teacher and she has this catering business on the side and yet she has really gone out of her way to, um, to drive, you know, the half an hour to get to his house, provide meals, and she said, there's just never a thank you. There's just never an acknowledgement that, you know, I've just gone completely out of my way. So again, she really expressed this kind of feelings in her own heart that she was being abused and that, you know, how much is she going to continue to do that um, um, with him? Um, when we think about institutional mistreatment, um, again, there are a lot more um, um, processes put in place. Most of you know that every institution has to have uh, an official uh, reporting person. So very often it's either the director of nursing or the administrator and dependent whether it's a skilled facility or an assisted living facility and there is you know um, a um, a process that's in place for investigations of any abuse most facilities are mandated um, to uh, immediately report any suspicion of neglect or abuse to the state I don't need to tell you, anybody who's ever worked in a nursing home or an assisted living facility, the amount of time that it takes to do that. However, um, it, is, um, it really is critical to not, you know, being in a facility that is, that is getting deficiencies that you have to report. Um, and I think uh, when we think about institutional neglect, um, a lot of the reports that we see are uh, injuries, for example, that potentially could be rough treatment. So um, bruises on skin, people just being handled, quote unquote, roughly. Um, for anybody who's worked as a direct care worker in an institution knows the challenges of transferring patients who have end-stage dementia who are really difficult transfers. Um, and, and in the course of that work, um, what happens? So there's the, again, reports of uh, injuries that may or may not be abused. And then there is, as you well know, um, um, abuse that happens um, in facilities. We, again, have seen in the news time and time again about facilities um, that were cited, fined, shut down um, because, again, of 
outright over um, abuse uh, and or neglect. Um, I guess some of the, back to the kind of the gray areas, most of us have uh, in, in geriatrics, have walked into one of those nursing homes where you walk in and there is, um, you know, kind of that um, corral around the nurse's station of people maybe crying out, people who are uncomfortable. Um, it always amazes me how in facilities, um, how, how the staff and um, people in a facility can uh, get used to that. Um, and when you come in as an outsider, your immediate reaction is um, thinking about neglect and is it okay that there's not more uh, activities or that there's not more one-on-one. -on -one. Um, we all know how challenging it is to care for people who have uh, end-stage dementia, um, who are clearly emotionally uncomfortable and, and what is the responsibility of institutions um, to, to manage that um, and manage disruptive behaviors. Everybody knows that there is a, not only a mandate, but uh, a huge culture around reducing the use of antipsychotics in nursing homes. And while we all you know, sit around a table and agree that that's the right thing to do, how trained and how prepared are staff to, to manage um, the behaviors um, when, when medications are not being used. So one of the things that we find here at the Geriatric Education Center is that um, one of the most uh, popular topics that people ask for education around is dementia and managing dementia patients. Um, when we hold conferences that focus on um, you know, managing disruptive behaviors, um, that they're full. Um, so it is, it is a huge issue. And I think, again, back to the fine line of this kind of overt abuse versus this kind of passive neglect and what happens in institutions. Um, I think that, you know, clearly direct care workers, regardless of where they're working, whether it's in someone's home whether it's in a nursing home or an assisted living facility, are notoriously underpaid, undertrained. Um, and again, how much of that um, becomes a part of um, being overworked? And, and, and again, the, the, we hope that those incidents of real abuse are much lower, but just in general, the neglect. Um, neglect that happens. Um, let me see how much time do I have, Laura? Ten minutes? Um, yes. Okay. Um, I want to get to um, some cases. So case number one, an 80-year-old man is brought to the ED by the police after he was found several blocks from his apartment in the middle of the night. He tells the admitting provider, provider I'm fine, I was taking a walk and got lost. Review of systems is positive only for urinary frequency. When asked about his medications, he says it's all there in the chart. When he last attended the primary care clinic over a year ago, his medications were glipizide, atenolol, and warfarin. 
He was evaluated at the ED three times in the last three months for dizziness, back pain, and an INR of five. The patient reports independence in all ADLs and IADLs. Um, so some of the triggers in terms of this case, obviously three emergency room visits in the last three months, an INR of five, which clearly is, is dangerous. His list of medications um, are, uh, are a trigger. Number one, glipizide is you know, the number one medication in older adults that causes uh, hypoglycemia and certainly the warfarin, all the risks of, of the warfarin as well. So this clearly is a guy, regardless of his cognitive impairment, is at risk for any number of things. The patient says he has no close family or friends and has no emergency contacts listed in the EMR. Uh, several referrals have been made to home health agencies, but they report that the patient refuses all nursing and physical therapy visits. On exam, his temperature is normal, BMI is fine, blood pressure is 160 over 90, heart rate is 90. Um, again, some of these things indicate that he's probably not taking the atenolol with, with a, uh, um, a heart rate of 90. OT2 sat 99, thin and dressed in a worn bathroom that smells of urine. Um, his exam is unremarkable and he refuses to answer any questions from the MMSC. So he has a leukocytosis um, and some nitrites and white cells in his urine, certainly indicating a urinary tract infection. And a hemoglobin A1C of 11%, again, would indicate that he's clearly not managing his diabetes. He's admitted to the hospital and antibiotics were initiated for presumed UTI. White count goes down, daily insulin injections and resumption of the warfarin, hypoglycemia resolves in the INRs and therapeutic range. Patient's medically stable and insists on returning home, but the floor nurse reports that he's unable to self-administer insulin. So which of the following is the most appropriate next step for determining a safe discharge plan for this patient? A, referral to home health agency. B, formal evaluation of decision-making capacity. Referral to adult protective services. Evaluation for depression. Evaluation for dementia. Anybody care to chime in? Unmute and chime in. Okay. Some places are not able to. Yeah, I guess you. Um, so, so the right answer here is is the formal evaluation of decision decision making capacity, and that's really the first next step, right? To figure out whether or not what what are the next steps. Well, if we think about the decision tree, the first thing we say is, does he have capacity to make decisions, right? So, if he does have capacity to make decisions. Then we're back to, boy, this is a really horrible situation of self-neglect. And what can we do about it? Well, we can certainly offer services as much as we can, but if he has capacity and, and does not want to accept any interventions, there's really not a whole lot we can do about it. Now, what if he does not have capacity to make decisions? Then what are our options? Well, then our options are to think about um, again, who should be making decisions for him? Who can help support him better in the community? Um, sometimes, as always, 
these really are gray areas. So somebody may lack some decision-making capacity, um, but again, is it to the point where this, where number one, it's it's a reportable case? Um, certainly, by the description of how he showed up in the in the into the ED. I mean, this guy was one step away from you know having a, a subdural hematoma with an INR of five. Um, I'm not as worried about his, his diabetes, but as long as he's not giving himself the insulin. But but there are some real dangers here. Um, and then part of the, the decision-making, too, is would you keep somebody like this on warfarin? And if he doesn't have decision-making capacity, who should be making the decisions for him? And is this something that, again, you would um, pursue a, a guardian to help make some of those decisions? Um, one more quick case, 75-year-old woman comes to the office for follow-up. She has cognitive impairment, AFib, hypothyroidism, osteoarthritis, accompanied by her nephew who states that he is her healthcare agent. He reports that he moved in with the patient one year ago because the patient became distrustful of her aides and let them go. He handles the cooking, shopping, and finances and says that the patient missed her last four appointments and rarely leaves her apartment now because she has difficulty ambulating. He reports that she often does not want to bathe and refuses to take her meds. He requests a strong painkiller for her increasing arthritis. Previous notes describe an impeccably dressed woman who managed a large charity fund and had private hire 24-hour assistance. Today, the patient frequently looks to her nephew and allows him to answer most questions. One month ago, the patient was admitted to the hospital after an unwitnessed fall. Laboratory findings on admission, an INR of 1.2, which as you know was low, a DIG level of zero, suggestion she's not taking the DIG, um, and a thyrotropin level of 12. Her medications were adjusted, pain was controlled, and low-dose oxycodone acetaminophen um, was, was ordered. The inpatient team recommended discharge to a post-acute rehab facility, but the nephew insisted that she return home. She was discharged with a referral for home PT, but the case was never open. Nephew says that the therapist requested visits that were too early in the morning. So, I mean, you get it. This is a situation where, again, it kind of, you know, as I say, you know, smells a little fishy. Um, so the patient has some high blood pressure, again, a high heart rate. Um, she's obviously losing weight. She's pretty frail, thin. Um, so again, which of the following is the most appropriate immediate next steps? Interview the patient alone, obtain a copy of the proxy, refer the patient to PT, discontinue um, warfarin, increase the narcotics, certainly not. Um, and, and the correct answer to this is, is, is actually to, to interview the patient alone. But I would suspect um, that the patient may not be as forthcoming um, and would certainly, again, back to the team approach, really engage uh, any community providers, get on the phone, call the VNA, ask them to go out to make a home assessment and then not only partner with the VNA, but anybody else on the team to then decide whether or not this, is, uh, this would be appropriate for, for a referral to Adult Protective Services. Um, that is the end. We have run out of time. Um, again, I think the most salient points are, number one, um, you know, trust your gut. Number two, screen whenever possible. Number three, um, really um, foster a team approach. I mean, you really can't do this alone. Um, 
And um, again, as much as you can develop a relationship with any reporting agencies, I would, I would strongly encourage that. Um, any questions or comments? Yeah. yeah, sorry, I wish I could give you the rest of the day off, but you know. Thank you very much for coming.